Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. Our desire is to reflect the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to Los Angeles and the world, and one way we do this is by sharing God's word through our weekly sermons. Here is today's message. We are continuing our journey through Exodus. Uh, We're in the second half of uh, Exodus 4, and it occurred to me... uh, the title of this series is Exodus, Covenant and Calling, uh, and we're going to talk a lot about covenant. The covenant is the centerpiece of, the, of, of Exodus. The, 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 the sort of climax of it is the moment in which the Israelites are brought out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and God covenants with them. Uh, covenant is important in almost every chapter of Exodus, and we're going to be uh, continuing to talk about it uh, all through this series, but I don't think that we've formally sort of defined what we meant, what we mean when we say covenant. Uh, so I wanted to do that really quick before we dive into our text this morning. Uh, covenant is one of those Christian-y words that you hear all the time, you see all through the scriptures, uh, but you don't always get a good sense of what it means. There's a lot of Christian-y words like that. You guys agree? Uh, so I want you to understand what a covenant is. If nothing else at the end of this series, you should know really, you should understand really thoroughly what does it mean that God covenants with us? Because we are his covenant people. This morning, we're going to participate in a ritual of covenant renewal. So this, this service is, is, is about the covenant. So what is a covenant then? You're like, get on with it. Just define it already. This is how I would define a covenant. A covenant is a legally binding, legally binding. So it, 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 it's, uh, there's a, a law connected to it. It's, it's enforceable by law. A legally binding agreement that's made between two parties. Another way, uh, we often think of it as like a contract or something like that. We, we use covenants in our normal day-to-day life. In the scriptures, you'll sometimes see two parties, like Abraham will make a covenant with uh, another local power. And it's, it's just an agreement that they're making together that's sort of legally enforceable. If one party breaks it, then the other party can like bring a grievance against him. So in the Bible, these covenants are public events. You, you would uh, seal the covenant. Your, your agreement would be sealed by some sort of public ceremony. Uh, so all through the scriptures, you see these public ceremonies in which God and his people make an agreement together, a legally binding agreement together. And if either party breaks that legal agreement, then they could bring grievance against them, against the other person. So that's uh, sort of our our definition of covenant. Covenant is going to be important in this passage. I wanted to start uh, just by giving that little definition of what it was. Now, we're kind of moving through Exodus, right? We're already in chapter four. What's happened so far? Uh, let's, we're, we're, this this section, section that we're um, looking at today is kind of like a, a bridge uh, in between the prologue of the book and sort of the main action of the book. So what happens next chapter? Moses marches into Pharaoh's presence and demands that he let uh, the Israelites leave. And uh, that kicks off this Lengthy, I'm sure you're familiar with that part of the story, this confrontation between God and Pharaoh, uh, the 10 plagues, all that happens uh, in, that's very thoroughly dramatized in like the Prince of Egypt and, you know, 
Ten Commandments, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so before that was like the setup for it, the background information that's necessary for uh, setting the stage for this confrontation. So we had uh, the birth and early life of Moses. We had his first attempt to liberate God's people by uh, killing the Egyptian and then his consequent exile out of Egypt to Midian. Uh, there he meets his wife. He kind of settles down as a sheep herder. And then last week we talked about uh, Moses is retired. Uh, he's herding his sheep and then God comes and confronts him in the burning bush and summons him and calls him back. Moses tries to resist for a while, but eventually uh, gives in and he's now on his way back. So that's kind of this little section here uh, is the bridge in between the prologue and the main action. Now there's four things that happen in our text today. Uh, I've, uh, I've divided into four incidents. The first one I've called Moses and Jethro. So Moses and his father-in-law, um, that's sort of the action that happens. The next one is the Lord and Pharaoh. So the Lord says to Moses his plans for Pharaoh. The third thing that happens is this question mark thing. Uh, this weird incident with circumcision and uh, Zipporah and mysterious visitor. Okay. Uh, I have a quote on this passage, actually, as I was doing research for it. A guy that wrote extensively on this little incident, David Penchensky, he says, Biblical scholars love this passage because it is totally incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> so if I recall, I think they skipped this incident in uh, the Prince of Egypt. Do you guys remember, was it in <laughs> the Ten Commandments? I don't think, I don't remember any circumcision scenes in that. Okay, so the, a very mysterious thing happens, and then uh, we have Moses and Aaron. Aaron is sent out to greet Moses. They uh, go back and greet the people. So today, I, I believe that, uh, you know, as, as a piece of history, the book of Exodus was uh, readily understandable by its original audience. So I think all the information that the original audience needed to understand what happens in this story is present in it. I also think that of, uh, the author of this, Moses, had innumerable incidents that he could have written about, included in, could have included in the Exodus story. So Moses' life, everything that happens in the Exodus, there's tons of things. Moses narrows it down and includes the important things for us understanding what God was doing uh, in, uh, in this liberation of Israel from Egypt. So in other words, every incident in here is important for our understanding of what happens. God wanted this in here. This wasn't like an oversight, accidental inclusion of uh, some random mysterious event. So we're going to go through the other three, one, two, and four, pretty quickly, because you know, a lot of the things that happen in them uh, repeat material that happens later. So we'll talk about some of the themes later in those sections, and then we're going to zero in on this incident. And hopefully, hopefully by the end, uh, we'll all understand it perfectly, despite the fact that biblical scholars claim it's totally incomprehensible. I think it is comprehensible. I think we can understand it. Uh, maybe I'm just being naive, though. All right, let's dive into it. So let's talk first about this incident with Moses and Jethro. Uh, so the, it opens, uh, Moses has had his encounter with the burning bush. He returns back to his father-in-law, this guy named Jethro. 
we get a little, little cultural context here. Uh, Jethro would have been sort of the, the chieftain uh, with his family and extended family network all sort of under him. So Moses, as his son-in-law, is like a member of his household. Jethro is the head of that household. So uh, Moses uh, would have been an important person in Jethro's household. And so he goes back and he asks for permission to leave. That's basically what's happening here. Um, I, I don't think that Moses is intending to deceive his father-in-law by what he says. I think we're just getting like a little snippet, a little sample of a much larger conversation in which he probably explained in more detail what he was doing, uh, but there wasn't a need to replicate that here. So I, uh, some people have suggested, because what he actually says is, I'm going to go see if my brothers are still alive. Um, so some people have suggested maybe he was like hiding from his father-in-law what he was really doing. I don't think that's the case. We know that they have a great relationship. Later on, Jethro's going to return uh, and uh, give Moses some great advice after they've left Egypt. So great, um, great relationship with Jethro. Moses is apparently waiting um, for a green light from God that the timing is right to go back. So he's got this call, but God hasn't yet said, okay, now go. Uh, so he's waiting for that. Um, the one thing I want to call to your attention to in this story is some of the wording here. Um, if you notice in the wording, uh, what it says, when, when God gives him the green light, he says, all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Uh, and there's this really interesting parallel with Matthew 2.20. It says this, when, when Jesus and his family, when Joseph and Mary have taken Jesus to Egypt, so they take Jesus to Egypt to hide him from danger. People are seeking Jesus' life. They take him down to Egypt. And when it's time for them to go back, it says, for those who sought the child's life are dead. The, the, in, linguistically, there's clear parallels. The, the Matthew 2.20 passage is echoing the language of this passage here. It's fascinating parallel, right? Uh, Moses has fled from Egypt... Jesus flees to Egypt. Keep, that, keep these things in mind. These are just little, little hints, little interesting things that are going on. The New Testament writers clearly draw, are drawing upon the Exodus story to help us understand what happens in the life and death of Jesus. It's crucial for our understanding what, what that story means. All right, the next little section, which I've called The Lord and Pharaoh, this is a sort of preview of the contest of the wills that's about to happen between God and between Pharaoh. And we have for the first time this fascinating idea that God is going to actually harden Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh initially refuses to let him go. But even as all these signs are going to happen, uh, God intervenes to ensure that Pharaoh continues to refuse to let the people go. Uh, and he announces this beforehand to Moses. Now, that's a fascinating subject, which we will talk in a lot more detail when it actually happens later. All right? So just, we're not going to talk about it right now, but it is interesting. Uh, the other thing to, to draw your attention to is this connection that uh, is drawn in the text between God's judgment being executed and the killing of the firstborn. So what God is about to do, what he's telling Moses is he is bringing judgment on Egypt. The nation that has enslaved Israel is about to feel the judgment of God. 
And the sign of that judgment is that God is going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. God's judgment is seen, is executed through the taking of the lives of the firstborn. Keep that idea in mind too. Actually, this is, this is, uh, that idea is, leads directly into the mysterious thing that we're going to talk about with uh, Zipporah and everything. So keep that in mind. And then last, uh, the last incident uh, following what happens with this odd circumcision, Moses, uh, or Aaron is sent out to Moses. He goes out and he greets him. Then Moses and Aaron uh, gather the elders of Israel together. They tell them everything that God said to tell them. Uh, they probably tell them the name Yahweh at this point. Uh, and then they, uh, all the people, oh, then they, Moses and Aaron do some of the miraculous signs to kind of show, to, to prove or, or give authority to what they're saying. Um, that's kind of how, how the, the word was often accompanied in the past when, when God gave it with works of power that were obvious so that you wouldn't question um, that the, the word was authentic, that it had actually come from the Lord. So it doesn't say precisely what they do, but probably he did the, the staff trick, right? Throw the staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. That's probably what happened. Anyway, so all the people, they believe, they're ready, they're like, okay, it's time. Time to go out. And that's where the story ends. Uh, that's where our passage ends for today. All right, good. You ready to talk about this uh, bridegroom of blood thing? All right, let's talk about it. It's great. Great little story. You're about to get the final word on it. You don't ever... Have to wonder what happens ever again. I discovered it this week. <laughs> the definitive. Just kidding. Well, kind of. I'm confident in this interpretation. I'm pretty confident in it. So this is what happens. Let me read it again. I'm going to bring out some of the odd things that are happening here. At a lodging place on the way. So Moses is on his way to Egypt. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, Zipporah, took a flint, a flint knife, and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, some questions that need to be settled here. Who does God seek to put to death? Is it Moses? Or is it his son? Or someone else? The text doesn't say. It says him. In fact, all through this, all of the pronouns are undefined. So it's all him, him, him. In fact, in, in that text when it says that she touched Moses' feet, that is an interpretation of the ESV. Moses does not occur there. It just says his feet. So the, whoever translated the ESV, they're like, these dum-dums need me to clarify what it is. I'm going to tell them what I think it is. It's Moses. Is it Moses? Does she touch Moses' feet with it? Or someone else? The Lord's feet? Or her son's feet? So who does God seek to put to death? Is it Moses or one of his sons? If Moses, why? He just called him to go to Egypt. And then he comes out to, to try and kill him? Why, why does he do that? Why would he do that? What did Moses or his son do that angered God? Why is God angry? Now, God is God. He could simply, you know, strike down Moses or whoever he's angry at in a second. 
So why does the text say that he sought him, sought to kill him? Why this sort of time element in it? Now, how does Zipporah know what to do? Why does she decide to do what she does? This is, I'm summarizing what the, if you go and read about this passage, most people are just like, oh. <laughs> Whose feet does Zipporah touch with the foreskin and why? What does the phrase bridegroom of blood mean? Why does she say that? And who is the bridegroom of blood? Is the Lord the bridegroom? Is Moses the bridegroom of blood? None of these things. All these are, are issues raised by the text. None of it is clear um, in terms of, if you just take this text out alone, you can't answer those questions by themselves. We need greater context. Now, as I said earlier, I think that the original audience of this text understood it. So when this story was told to, uh, you know, Moses would have written this, and then this was like read to the Israelites after they're liberated from Egypt and they're, you know, they've received the law and everything. This story is read to them. They would have understood it. They would have known what, what, what was going on in it, I think. <clears throat> if it's difficult for us, it's because we have not entered sufficiently into the context of the passage. We haven't read it with the same uh, background information setting that its original audience would have read it in. So I'm not sure if we can entirely recapture that, but that's what we're going to try and do. Recapture the original contextual understanding of this passage and see if we can make sense of it. I think it's very important. I think this is powerful, meaningful. I think this speaks about our, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. I think it comforts us. It's directly relevant to what we are doing this morning. That's my claim. Now remember, the book of Exodus does not stand alone. It's preceded by Genesis. It's part of one continuous work that we've divided for certain purposes. But, but Genesis leads inexorably into Exodus. Genesis provides the necessary context for Exodus. So when, when we're reading this, the stories of Genesis are the context for our understanding of what happens in Exodus. Now, I think that there are two incidents from Genesis and one from Exodus that frame this story and give us a proper understanding of it. <clears throat> so, let's look at those really briefly. First of all, the first uh, important piece of context is the covenant that's made between God and Abraham in the book of Genesis. So when God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, it's this agreement. He makes promises to him. And then they have a, a, a ceremony that sort of seals this covenant. And in this ceremony, God takes an animal, he cuts it in two, and then he passes between it. So it's a ceremony of blood. The covenant is sealed by a ritual of blood. Then later, when this covenant is renewed in Genesis 18, a new ritual of blood is instituted that, that Abraham and his sons do, Abraham and his household does. And that is the ceremony of circumcision. By a public act, a ritual, it, it, it sealed the agreement that was made between God and man. It made Abraham 
and his household covenant members. They belonged to an agreement that was sealed. It was a ceremony of blood. So that's the first incident that's relevant. The second incident that's relevant, later on, when uh, God gives a son to Abraham, name is Isaac, uh, God does something very odd. He commands Abraham to go up on a mountain and sacrifice his firstborn son. God exercises judgment, a sort of symbolic judgment on Abraham by demanding the death of his firstborn son. And when Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain, mercy is extended and a sacrifice is given that replaces Isaac. It comes in his place. A sacrifice of blood. So uh, God says, you don't have to kill Isaac and then he gives him a ram that he kills in his place. So those are, those are the two pieces of context in, in Genesis. We have this covenant that's sealed by circumcision, and we have uh, this judgment that's, uh, uh, of the taking of the firstborn son that is uh, like mercy is shown in it, and God provides instead uh, a sacrifice in its place. Of course, the third piece of context is something that comes after this, but for the first audience, they would have been aware of it, right? It would have already happened. They knew about it. They would have experienced it. And that was that in Egypt, God exercised judgment on the Egyptians by taking their firstborn sons. The angel of death came upon Egypt, and all the firstborn sons of Egypt died in one night. There was a night of judgment. And the Israelites, the Israelites were spared from that judgment by a ritual of blood. Each household of Israel killed an animal, a lamb, and then spread the blood of that lamb over their door. And when the angel of judgment passed over every house that was covered in blood, The angel passed over it. Okay, those those are our key pieces of context for this story. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to answer all those questions I asked right now. I'll tell you all the answers to all of them. Okay, you ready for this? Who does God seek to put to death? The firstborn son of Moses. Why does he seek to put him to death? God is exercising judgment. In the same way that he's going to come to Egypt, he begins by exercising judgment on the household of Moses. All right, let's start there. So the key detail that would have leapt out for the first readers of this story it's, it's not explicitly stated because it would have been so clear to its audience. Moses has not circumcised his offspring. He has not circumcised his sons. That would have been like, like a blaring neon light in this story. If you're, if you're a first reader of it and you're a member of the covenant of Israel. 
But why did he? Should he have circumcised his son? Could he have circumcised his son? Remember where Moses is. Moses is not living among the Israelites. Moses has not taken an Israelite wife. He is married to a foreign woman, a daughter of Midian, not an Israelite. The text doesn't explicitly say why he, doesn't, why he didn't circumcise his ch- child, but if we can speculate, perhaps he thought that he couldn't. He couldn't circumcise the daughters of a foreign woman or the sons of a foreign woman. Because he'd contracted with this outsider, which was a, a huge taboo among the Israelites, they did not marry outside of Israel. And he had taken a foreign wife. Perhaps he couldn't circumcise his child. They weren't, couldn't enter into the covenant with God because of the, the circumstances of their birth. Now, we've, we've talked about this multiple times, but I, I have to bring it out again. Again, Moses' position, status, his position as sort of hero of this story is undercut. Moses fails to, to do the right thing for his family here. And who comes in to replace him? Who is the one that emerges as the person of honor in this story? It's a foreigner. Not just a foreigner, but a woman. A woman. Now, (laughs) obviously, we don't have the same uh, sort of outlook on men and women today necessarily that would have been common in the ancient Near East. So, uh, the fact that, um, I, I just have to say, uh, let me pause briefly. I want to bring out a thread that runs all through the scriptures. That thread is how God uses and honors foreign women. Foreign women. It's, it's everywhere in the scriptures. It's sort of this like hidden thing. It's not an ex- explicit theme but it's, it's present everywhere. In the genealogy of Jesus, there are four women named. A bunch of anonymous men, a few famous names in there, but a lot of anonymous men. Then there's four women, and all four are foreigners. They're all from outside Israel. So here, this, this key moment, this moment in the text, uh, a foreign woman, an outsider, has stepped in and is acting, is doing something. I think if, if we're reading this right, this is, this is our position in the text. As outsiders, as sinners, as those uh, who like, are, are not in ourselves worthy of God's mercy, care, grace, love, that we have nothing that we can claim when we approach God on our own, that's sort of the place that we occupy in the text. And that's where Zipporah is here. And what she does is she takes her household under her and she seeks from God membership in the covenant. He basically approaches God and says, can I be in your family? Will you be unto me a bridegroom of blood? Can I seal you to myself as spouse? 
Can I be a member of the covenant of mercy and grace and thereby escape the judgment which is coming upon all the earth? The ritual of circumcision is a ritual of covenant establishment. By going to her firstborn son, circumcising him, taking the blood of that offering and bringing it to the feet of the Lord. She is requesting participation and membership in the covenant of grace. God's answer is not explicitly stated, but of course, judgment is not exercised on her family. The angel of judgment, which had approached the, the, the household of Moses, passes over it. That's the meaning of this. That's the story explained. <clears throat> now, let's take that and move it to us today. With these things, rituals of blood, judgment exercised on the firstborn, foreign people approaching God, requesting membership in the covenant. With all these things, God is furnishing his people a sort of symbolic world, a set of metaphors that are going to bear fruit all through the rest of the Bible. Because in the fullness of time, God's judgment is going to be exercised on his firstborn son. In the fullness of time, a ritual of blood in the crucifixion, the angel of death is going to pass over Calvary. And an invitation is going to go forth that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And so it's fitting. On the night when he was betrayed, he instituted a new ritual of covenant renewal in which his body and blood are presented to his people. That by taking them in, the covenant is renewed to them. Judgment passes over them. Forgiveness is brought to them. That is how we participate in this text. The foreigners that approach God seeking mercy and find it in the judgment on the firstborn, participation in that ritual. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. We are a church on a mission to revive believers, reach friends, and reflect Christ. If you would like more information about our church, visit www.chapelpasadena.com or email us at info at chapelpasadena.com.
Thank you for listening to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. We are a church on a mission to revive believers, reach friends, and reflect Christ. If you would like more information about our church, visit www.chapelpasadena.com or email us at info at chapelpasadena.com.